Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and this week we celebrate director Ben Wheatley through his dystopian film High Rise and its follow-up, the pulp gangster thriller, Free fire. I think old director is 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 a kind of a, a, a polite way of saying it, someone who's made films that not like many people have seen, and that's absolutely a fact. So I can't I can't really get upset about it. As is very appropriate for a podcast from the Barbican. Let's begin by entering the brutalist daydream of cult British author J. G. Ballard's book High Rise. In this film adaptation by Ben Wheatley, we follow Dr. Robert Lang, played by Tom Hiddleston, a new resident to a utopian tower block. He is befriended by neighbours such as Charlotte Melville, played by Sienna Miller, and Helen Wilder, played by Elizabeth Moss, with the most overbearing residents being the architect of the project, played by Jeremy Irons, and his wife, played by Keely Hawes. Who are you? Did you invite him? Of course not. No, Royal did, actually. I hope you don't mind. <sighs> Must be one of his funny little social experiments. What have you come as? A dilettante? <laughs> <laughs> As the drama develops, everything and everyone begins to run out of control. I caught up with the director in an I caught up with the director in an editing suite in Soho to discover more about his dystopian vision. What made you want to bring this iconic writer's vision to the screen? Um, it's a book that I'd really liked when I was a kid, um, and it's one of those books that I don't know you kind of read when you're like fifteen, sixteen, and it's part of that kind of entry into the um, the world of the counterculture and mm. taking drugs and listening to rock and roll and all that kind of stuff <laughs> so i kind of i'd read it along with like naked lunch and um oh, yeah. i shouldn't say naked lunch and because it sounds like naked luncheon doesn't it which is not <laughs> not what not what that book is about but uh, you know I, uh so i'd read it then and and uh, yeah and i think at the time i was probably more interested in the kind of chaos and anarchy of it but when i came back to it as an adult, it, there was um, it had different meanings, you know, and it, it was amazing how prescient it was and how it fitted with, you know, I mean, this is the danger of Ballard is that he he's writing predictive science fiction, and if you live long enough, you manage to see it come true, which yeah. is unfortunate, you know, and it seemed to become even more relevant now than it, than it's ever been. Um, if I had to sort of like sum up the story very quickly, um, a tower block having a nervous breakdown, would you agree? Yeah, or a country, or a man, or a woman. You know, I think it works on lots of different levels in that respect from from what he's, he's structuring it. But it's certainly not a kind of um, an essay on post-war architecture. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll survive. 
I don't doubt it. You're an excellent specimen. I thought you were empty. Um, I, I just moved in. I'm Charlotte Melville. Hi. Um, sorry, I'm, I must have fallen asleep. You know, I was really lucky to get that kind of large cast and with that with that pedigree and kind of cultural heft as much as anything, you know. I was interested to read that this was filmed in uh, Bang- Bangor, in, in, in Belfast. I imagined you would have found somewhere derelict around London or somewhere else, Milton Keynes or somewhere like that. What, what, what took you there? Um, I mean, it, it, shooting in places that are fucked is quite dangerous, you know, just on a, on a dull health and safety <laughs> level. So you can't really film in a, in a, in a ruined place. You have to kind of, you, and all the ruinedness of the, in the film is, is is art department. It's you know because as soon as you you know most and this is the problem we had with the with the with the actual seventies brutalist buildings is that they've got um, they're all full of asbestos, so you really can't go to ones that are damaged because you'll kill the crew and no one wants that, you know. Um, and so and we looked up and down the country, we just couldn't find anywhere in England. Um, and we looked at Birmingham Library, which was as close as we got to a really amazing Brutalist building, and which was closed down at the time. And uh, they and they kind of wouldn't even let us in it, and then they knocked it down. So we were really lucky in the end when we got to Bangor because it had like the sports centre, which was um, built in '73, I think, and um, and had been. Uh, and the other problem with with kind of Brutalist stuff is that it all got kind of rehabilitated in the 80s. So there were lots of it got covered in m- nasty marble and kind of <laughs> like atriums put on it and all that kind of 80s stuff. So there wasn't a lot of places that were untouched. Or if they were really brilliant, like Barbican, they're in full use and they don't appreciate like, you know, it would be a big stretch for them to accommodate a film crew and then a film crew that was then going to turn the place upside down as well. So, yeah. so yeah, in the end we found this, this sports centre which wasn't being used. They'd already built a new one in Bangor which was really swanky and beautiful so everyone was going to that. And it was next to a police station so it never got vandalised or, or ruined and it was like a time capsule. It was fantastic. Going back to the actors, um, what sort of direction did you give Tom Hiddleston? I mean, his character has to have this breakdown alongside the building. Well, with Tom, it's like he, he does a massive amount of research um, from, you know, reading tons about Ballard and reading Ballard and um, watching movies around it. And then also, I mean, he went to an autopsy and, you know, kind of, which I wouldn't do, <laughs> to be honest. You know? And they offered it and I was like, yeah, you know what? I don't fancy that. What scene can never be unseen, you know? So I, it was, uh, uh, and then just general conversations around it. But on the day, it's not a lot. I don't tend to kind of really get into it. I'm not that, I'm not that kind of a director act stuff out or anything. So um, it's more, there's been a lot of discussion beforehand and then it's just monitoring the performance and kind of just giving him feedback to where, where he is in the, in, in, in his arc of, of, of his breakdown um, or, you know, higher or lower level. That's usually what all I do. I mean, it's not, I think by that point it gets too complicated. And also, you know, I always, I, I do it on f- from my own experience, which is, you know, if you get, if you're lost in the street and you ask someone for direction mm. and they give you, they say it's down there, it's on the left, you see a big red house, you go forward, then you'll see there's like an old petrol station. You go left at the petrol station. Can't remember any of that shit. You know, I, I can remember the first bit of direction, but the rest of it's just lost in the wind, you know, and I think that, I feel that that's probably possibly true with actors as well as if you talk too much, it's just, you know, people can only remember the first two things you say. So and I think that's, yeah. just keep it clear and simple, you know. Yeah, I mean, I do give them direction, but it's just light direction. And I think that's the, the clues in the name. It's direction, it's not telling, you know. And so, um, but yeah, I think environment is really important and how everyone feels on set. And um, and also that there's, uh, to to foster this kind of feeling of experimentation where there's no, 
I think that's the most important thing for me with performance is trying to make sure that the actors don't feel like they can fail and you just let them go and then they can do their thing and if it's not quite working with where it where it needs to be then there's just subtle just gentle conversation about it so and then because it's all confidence I think this stuff and the more confident the actors are the the better their performances are you know ah Dr. Lang I hear you play squash yes I do you built all this Dreamt, conceived. I hardly roll my sleeves on. Of course. Project's far from finished. Over five times and all. Circling the lake. Something like an open hand. Lake is the palm. And we stand on the distal phalanx of the index finger. There. I was told once that um, um, architects have a god complex. This definitely seems to be the case with uh, Jeremy Irons' character, Anthony Royal, you know, at the top of the building, the, the top person, and ultimately responsible maybe for what goes wrong. I think that's that's true, and it's the kind of the arrogance of man, isn't it? And you know, plans of mice and men. It's, it, these things don't necessarily come together in the way that you'd hope. I mean, he has, you know, he's kind of broad thinker, Royal, because he's kind of made this place, and he says it's like a crucible for change, but he hasn't really considered what the change will be, and and which bit of the change is positive and which is negative, and, and he's just kind of rolling with it, which I quite like about him. You know, he's mm. quite he's quite open to ideas and ready to very quickly resketch his goals. <laughs> what was it called? Was it in in, um, in uh, computer programming when things become a a bug and then they turn it into a, and they they claim it's a feature? I think that's what, what Royal does a lot. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, I was seeing echoes in the film of um, um, Stanley Kubrick, um, maybe Clockwork Orange in a more literal sense. Mm. Was that a direct reference or just just someone that's very much part of who you are as a director? Yeah, I mean, I think it would. I think that there's elements on it that obviously are a nod, which are kind of like the costume stuff and the costume ball is like, and I can't really pretend that that wasn't, you know. But generally, I don't try to make stuff, I don't, I'm not postmodern in that respect of kind of like recreating sequences from other movies. But I think that, yeah, there's a lot of different influences across the the, the film from culture. And some of them may not be from, even from film, you know, you get them from television and from comics and literature mm. and stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a big old melting pot of stuff and some of it is I like some of it's like cultural echoes I think more than than references almost they're more of a mm. um more, more it works more in that way for me anyway but you know I'm not, I'm not the one who gets to say <laughs> my car was crushed by reversing cement truck I'm afraid I'm not a physiotherapist I know what you are Dr. Lamb constant exercise is the only thing that keeps the pain at bay so you could say not only am I the building's first road casualty but i am the architect of my own accident what do you think of that um how much do you think this film is about darkness because um you know again we talked about the autopsy and that and that, that scene where tom's character uh, reveals the brain i found skin crawlingly revolting mm-hmm. but and I, I wondered whether that was something that always seems to bubble up in your work even if you're not doing a film that's directly in or near that genre um i think that scene for me is so you know, obviously, he's dealing with that metaphor of like the the mask, the face is a mask. But there's also that kind of line where people between people being having humanity and being objects. You know, and I think that's what's really scary about autopsy because you can literally see feel that moment when it happens. I mean, it's a bit like I don't know. I saw this. What was it? I saw a chat show where a guy was saying, oh, "I'm I'm scared of owls," and the and the um the 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 host started. 
wanted to find at what point he had that fear. So he drew a circle. He said, are you afraid of that? No. And he still has a beak on it. He goes, are you afraid of that? And he goes, oh, no, I don't know. And then his round eyes going, oh, I'm feeling uneasy. It's like, wow, that's the moment where it becomes, you know, where you see that thing happen and materialize. And I certainly think that's the case with peeling skin off a face. It's like you go, this is this was a human. Oh, my God, now it's an object. And how do I deal with that that turn that I have that feeling mm-hmm. towards it? But also the fact that, you know, throughout the thing, the behavioural patterns of the people are like the mask that they have to be stripped back and then they find what's underneath, you know, and keep, they, but Ballard keeps peeling it back and peeling it back again and again and again to see where they end up. I mean, doesn't it seem odd, like, that a man can fall from the 39th floor and not one police car turn up? Where's the investigation line? I mean, where's the sirens? I think this is a theme in, in his books in general, but did you ask the question, why were they left alone? Why didn't the police, the army come and try and sort out this mess, this incredible thing happening? There's, that's a kind of plot, plot question, isn't it? I mean, it's like there's, there's, a, there's a question of why don't they leave? I think is more interesting, which is that they kind of enjoy what's going on. Why are they left alone? is more of a question for now isn't it and kind of ties into the into the question why isn't it set in the present day you know and and i think that that we would expect things to be found out more easily now you know and i think that there was there was a secret kept by the people who were in the tower and they were going to work and they weren't telling you know and that could work for fight club as equally as it could work for the why didn't jimmy savile get caught till after he was dead you know go ask everyone about that one you know how why didn't the police turn up on that you know and i think that's a similar kind of thing it's like they kind of they don't want to tell anyone it's their secret and they keep they get on with it but if it was set now they'd everyone would be taking photographs and put it on on um mm. twitter so that everyone would know you're described oft, often as a cult film director. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're happy with that label. I mean, it doesn't help when you obviously direct things like Doctor Who <laughs> or, or do more kind of, you know, maybe genre stuff. Uh, I think cult director is is a, is a kind of a, a, a polite way of saying it, someone who's made films that not a lot many people have seen. And that's absolutely a fact, so I can't, <laughs> I can't really get upset about it. I mean, and there's two flavours of cult director. There's kind of a person who's making movies at that moment that not many people see, and then there's a big proper big cult director is someone who's made massive movies that were a bit poo-pooed at the time and then then they've been critically rehabilitated later and I don't think that's where I am at the moment yet though that so but both could go you could have the worst of both worlds of, of films not being seen by many people and then being rehabilitated later but that, that'd be fine no it doesn't bother me at all it's good I mean any anything saying anything is good isn't it as this is, this is for the Barbican film podcast you meant you mentioned in passing earlier was there any did you look at drawings like take any inspiration at all from from the brutalism of the Barbican absolutely yeah the Barbican is an incredible building but and if you really squint in high rise there is a one tiny shot of the Barbican in one of the montages um so yeah I mean of course I, mean, I was there the other day doing um uh, an interview and just marveling at it and just wishing we could have shot there but I, you know, I, I can't imagine for a split second. We'd have had to have hired the whole place out for seven weeks, closed all down every, every, th- every bit of music and every bit of exhibition, and and really upset all the residents. So I don't think it would have happened. You know? I'm just curious. I mean, where are you uh, with your next uh, film, uh, Free Fire? I think that's where we're working at the moment. We're sitting now in the room in the in the preview theatre for it, and we're in the grading room. So we've just. We just watched the final grade, so it's done pretty much. Um, we're just doing the, the last bits of the sound mix at the moment. So, yeah, it should be done in, in a week and a bit, I think. Is that a horse? Probably. My wife rides. On the 40th floor. 
And director Ben Wheatley returned a year or so later with a gang of criminals and one of the longest shootouts in recent cinema history. Free Fire featured a cast that included Brie Larson, Army Hammer, Killian Murphy, Sam Riley, Noah Taylor and Michael Smiley. The film has a packed 90-minute runtime that brings together two gangs, one warehouse and an incredible amount of ammunition. He says it's not what he ordered. They ordered M16s? Really? I'm not running a pizza delivery service. You want the weapons or you don't want the weapons? The director had, previous to High Rise, brought us a field in England, Sightseers and Kill List. We met up, though, to discuss this 70s set thriller. You fill up my senses like night in a forest. What we tend to do is write a lot of scripts, so and, and there might be all types of kinds of scripts, but we don't get a choice in what we get to make because that's a finance choice, you know, it's what gets traction. So a certain type of film might be easier to finance than another one. So then you might get a certain type of movies in a row like that. Mm. So I think that's more the more the case. But yeah, but I also like cinema, you know, and I like all sorts of elements of it. And so I write lots of different types of story or I want to see lots of different types of films. So the script itself moves very quickly through the machine of of the industry, you know, in terms of getting actors on board and finance interested. Probably because it's kind of less ambiguous and also doesn't have a really miserable ending, which is the main problem with most of the films I've made. It's it's less audience punishing than some of the earlier films. It's good to meet you, boys. Thanks for coming out. A bit later. I'm just saying relax. It's all good. If you wouldn't mind, as we agreed upon, I'll check for wires. Got it, Con. Good. Soon you guys will have even more. Come on, big guy. <laughs> you know where I'm from, boy? You'd be halfway up the road by now. I think it's fair to say you, you revel in the detail. Um, last night on Twitter, there was this fantastic floor plan of the, of the warehouse or the, the space that we're in for most of the film. Do you go deep in regards to planning for, for a film? Yeah, generally. I mean, I tend to um, storyboard a lot these days, which I never used to do. But it, it, it's because it's a way of like seeing the film for the first time without having to cost that much money. You know, you can, you can meet storyboards halfway and read them and imagine the film much more clearly than if you do it in your head. Well, you could imagine it in your head as well, but then but you get you you tend to let yourself off a lot of the harder things. So I, that's why I like to draw it because it's in your when you're seeing it in your mind's eye, the 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 stronger, more bolder elements of it come to the front, and you get excited. But the the smaller things like transitions or or things you don't really want to have to think about get kind of pushed to the side, so it can become just the greatest hits. But when you have to draw it, you see it all in all its you know horror or glory so yeah and and but a film like this you can't uh, free fire is not a film that you can wing you know it it was because it's in one space decisions that you make very early on you know you could be shooting you know week 1 if you don't put the actors in the right place by week 6 you're in real trouble you know and yeah. you can't get out of it so it all had to be planned massively you know so we had we built models and we like cardboard versions of the set within the in the empty space and walked it through again and again and again to make sure that it made some kind of sense. I think we got off on a little bit of a bad footing there. Eh? I think what we need to do is just start afresh. So I'm going to be the gentleman in this relationship and I'm going to chuck in a free box of lube because she likes to run wet. To talk about the film maybe in a little bit, little bit more detail, um, fantastic description I read is the idea of a game of cat and mouse, a very bloody game of cat and mouse. Yeah, well, I wanted to make something that was very graphic and dynamic and, and about movement and about spaces. Um, 
the cat and mouse thing is interesting in, in regards that I would think about it more like the way that they put together the Tom and Jerry cartoons, you oh, know. Really? Yeah, I mean, and that's the storyboarding comes into that. But Tom and Jerry is, you know, like a series of goals, missions, and then the outcomes from those missions. So it's set up like they need to get to here to there and they get this thing and then, you know, and you set up various gags, which then you play out through the, or they used to play out on those cartoons. And then the same thing with this is there's a level of narrative and a level of dialogue, but there's also a level of physical kind of um, action and comedy within it as well. So it was built around that. The title suggests, and it's not giving anything away to say there's a lot of bullets, a lot of gunfire within within the film. But the, the other thing which you seem to have lots of fun with is the dialogue. Yeah, I mean, they would in that situation be pretty salty with each other. So I wanted to see that and hear that. Once you get over the initial gun battle, it's about the people coming together and alliances being formed and then split apart and betrayals happening and all that. And that's where the drama is in the meat of it. Okay, just try not to hit any of the metal work because I don't want to get any of those bling burns on my new suit. Suit. Sorry, what was that? This is from Savile <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I for one think Vern's merchandise is a real gas. My guess is you're whatever you're paid to be, pal. I was reading that the idea of t- it taking a while for people to, to to die, but I think you did did a lot of research or you had some interest in sort of portraying that as as more a, a real thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I'd, uh, some of the idea of the film had come out of reading transcripts from the FBI about gun battles and being surprised how uh, messy they were in terms of. You know, even people who were trained not being able to hit people who were standing right in front of them and how actually quite difficult all this stuff is. It's not, you can't, like in a Hollywood movie, you can't just suddenly pick up a gun and fire it. It's like mm. it's like suddenly rushing into a room with a sewing machine and making a pair of trousers <laughs> if you've never used one before. It's it's not that easy. I wanted to see that, that some of that reality in a film. You know, it's like, well, what? It's basically taking something out of a thriller and exploding it. Like a normal thriller, there'd be a gunfight that would be, you know, a couple of minutes long somewhere in it. But what if that gunfight was all there was, you know, and how would that work? I think there's this idea that in cinema that the gun is like a death ray, you know, and it's not. And certainly with pistols, if it's a smaller calibre thing, it's quite difficult unless people are standing still to, to shoot them. To a degree. Did you try the guns? Have you had any experience of firing a gun? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I fired them all for research purposes. When we were making high rise, there was a, a we went to a range and shot and a lot of those pistols, which is really interesting. It was mm. that, you know, I found that I'm not too bad at shooting targets, but Laurie Rose, the DOP, was not very good. <laughs> I've got the target to prove that. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, that it's not an innate thing. But then one of the art department guys was just insane. He'd never had a gun in his hand in his life and it was just, he was like a dead shot. So it, that was interesting. The actual, it's like holding a firework. It's its so terrifying, the actual thing. It's mm. not, doesn't feel, in, it's not like, you know, sexy or empowering. It's just like holding a like a flame in your hand or something and wow. it, it is dangerous you know the, the film maybe because it's set in the 70s has a lot of facial hair and testosterone brie larson has quite a hard task as um justine to be the, the the single female how did you see her role how important is she within that crowd yeah i mean i think that i mean she's very important and it, it she was she's kind of interesting to me because she's like ripley but she's also like the alien as well in the same film at once so i quite like that yeah, I mean, it, and it's that 
trying to balance that. I didn't want it to become endlessly macho because that becomes boring, you know. So mm. I think that mix has to be there. But it's and also we were trying to go away from the idea of like the cliches of crime films of gangsters and the mafia and all that kind of stuff and that's why we did it you know but the, the the groups of characters are very mixed and they're not necessarily who you would have the stock characters for that for mm. a film like this i read that that it was made without cgi it was sort of the the six thousand rounds uh were, were all all happening in this uh, incredible brighton warehouse yeah it was mostly without cg so in a lot of modern films they tend to just have the guns and they jerk them back and then they 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 mime them firing basically, and then they put like a flash frame muzzle flash on in CG. But there's something about holding real blank firing guns, which is well, it's dangerous for starters, which is something you can't really act. And the and the recoil and stuff is all very specific, and the and the face you make when the percussion comes off them. So that that was all real. The most of the pyrotechnics were real as well. So bullets hitting walls and dust flying everywhere was all was all done in camera. But um. Occasionally, when it was too dangerous or stuff going too close to their heads, then we would do it as a CG thing. But I'd say it was like 98% real, most of it. You know what? Fuck the small talk. Let's buy some guns, eh? All right. Step into my office. Thanks to Ben Wheatley for those fantastic films and for speaking to us on those occasions. I'm Ben Eshmade. You've been listening to an archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.